All right, welcome to the debut episode, episode one of the Weekend Wrestling Podcast here on YouTube and elsewhere. I'm your host, Andy San, and today we're going to be going over this past week's uh, WWE Raw, SmackDown, and NXT, as well as last week's pay-per-view, No Mercy. And we're also going to be getting into a little bit of non-WWE news as well. So before we get right into it, I thought I'd introduce myself for those who don't know. My name's Andy. I'm a U.S. Navy veteran, served from 2010 to 2015. Um, I was stationed out in sunny San Diego for three years, uh, not only going through school, but also going to uh, the USS Kurtz through her final deployment, and then uh, got transferred out to the USS Lassen in Yokosuka, Japan for the remainder of my career, two years. Uh, but now I'm out going to school in lovely Kalamazoo, Michigan to get my degree so I can go back to Japan. But what does this mean for you guys? Nothing really, just, <laughs> just introducing myself. So uh, as far as my history with pro wrestling, I've been a wrestling fan, at least like an obsessive wrestling fan, since I'd say 1998. Um, like I, before then I watched like Hulk Hogan and stuff like that, like every kid in the, you know, early 90s was doing. Uh, but I didn't really like watch pro wrestling until 98-ish. And uh, it was really uh, a good thing for uh, me and my brother because uh, every Monday my dad would uh, record an episode of WWF Raw on the VCR. We I'd had it had the VCR set to where all he'd have to do is just put in a tape and uh, when we visit him on weekends uh, we'd sit down and watch the episodes together so it's a really a fond memory for me to look back on and uh, I kind of fell out of out of the loop with things for a while back in like 2000 I'd say probably 2010 2011ish I kind of stepped away from it and then in 2015 not 2014 I'd say is when I started to get back into it I started watching old uh interviews with you know wrestlers that I grew up watching back in the day and you know listening to you know shoot interviews with guys like Jim Cornette and just be like, man, I'm getting excited about wrestling again. So then I transitioned over to wrestling podcasts. Like, uh, you know, obviously my main inspiration, Solid Monster Sounds Off podcast. And uh, decided, you know, after all this time to finally start one of my own. So here we go. And uh, just for the record, I'm not going to be normally releasing these episodes on Sundays. It's just that... Um, I didn't realize just how much work went into releasing a podcast. This is my first actual podcast. I've been doing YouTube for friggin' ever, but never got around to doing a podcast until now. So I highly underestimated all the behind-the-scenes work that went into it, and uh, that's why this episode was delayed as much as it is. But normally, I'm going to try to focus on releasing these episodes on like a Friday or Saturday, something like that, because I don't want to compete with Solomonster and his sort of... Uh, deal because he releases his episodes on Sundays so I don't want to compete with him obviously because he's the big poobah he's been doing this for almost as long as I've been doing YouTube so yeah <laughs> but it's just it just kind of worked out this way for uh, this episode but just letting you guys know future episodes are going to be released a little earlier so still on the weekend so it still counts right <laughs> so enough about me let's get into non-wrestling news and then we'll get into uh 
this past week's No Mercy. So, the big news in uh, non-WWE related news is Billy Corgan, yes, the frontman of Smashing Pumpkins, is suing TNA. TNA president Billy Corgan has filed a lawsuit in Nashville against Impact Wrestling, which is TNA's parent company. The parent company also being known as Impact Ventures, LLC. Uh, he's also suing uh, TNA chairman Dixie Carter, uh, the TNA CFO, Chief Financial Officer Dean Broadhead, and Serge Salias, who is Dixie's husband. And uh, details are kind of scarce at the time of this recording, uh, but the court does reveal a temporary restraining order that has been approved, and a hearing for a temporary injunction will be held uh, this past or this coming Thursday, rather. Uh, Corgan has also requested a six-person jury to decide the case. Beyond that, exact nature of the lawsuit is currently unknown due to court documents being sealed. Corgan has also been attempting to purchase a majority stake in the company. Corgan's stake in the company has grown as he's financed several rounds of television tapings, but Dixie Carter has maintained a controlling interest. And uh, Aerolux Productions and the Fight Network also own shares. A sale was expected prior to TNA's Bound for Glory, also known as Bound for Bankruptcy. But Dixie Carter somehow secured funding, and Corgan has been unable to finalize a deal. Um, legendary wrestling reporter Dave Meltzer also noted this weekend, There are a lot of hurdles and games being played. Dixie has really made a mess and is responsible for all of it. And this is all um, from PW Insider, by the way. i got to give you know, citation when needed. So this is really interesting. So for those of you guys who have been following the TNA situation, um, I've only kind of been following bits and pieces of it. But from my knowledge, uh, Billy Corgan has been trying to buy the company for a while now. He's been, you know, building up his stocks and stuff like that, but he still doesn't have a controlling share in the company yet. He's part of creative team. Um, the guys in the back really like him. The wrestlers like him. So he wants to take the company in a new direction. He wants to rebrand it, kind of get away from the whole TNA thing. He probably wants to rename it to something else, which I think is great. Because, you know, over the years, that brand and just that name has just been so poisoned due to just terrible management and, you know, terrible decisions. And, you know, there was a brief time back in, like, 2010-ish, when they brought in like Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff, that it basically became WCW 2.0 there for a little while. And I'm surprised that they didn't go out of business then, but you know. The one positive thing I will say about TNA is that despite all this horrible mismanagement and horrible ratings on the various TV networks that they've been on, they've still managed to somehow stay alive. And they've also managed to outlast WCW and ECW. Possibly combined, I'm not entirely sure about that, I'll have to crunch the numbers, but they've at least outlasted those two companies. So if there's one positive about all this is that I'm pretty sure TNA or whatever the company is going to be called in the future will be able to live another day and hopefully uh, Billy Corgan does assume control so that way we can see kind of a rebirth for that company and get to see you know, these up-and-coming wrestlers being showcased how they should be. So, <clears throat> but now let's move into last week's WWE No Mercy, which was the SmackDown exclusive pay-per-view, although technically they're not really pay-per-views anymore, they're just like network specials, because 
I don't think WWE offers pay-per-views anymore. It's all like on the network and stuff, but I digress. So we'll go over the, these match-by-match. Uh, match. I got my notes here. I'll just kind of read off, and then I'll give some of my thoughts for uh, some of the big spots and stuff like that. So we start off WWE No Mercy 2016 with the WWE World Heavyweight Championship Triple Threat Match with AJ Styles, John Cena, and Dean Ambrose. There's a lot of dub uh, big double spots in this match, like Cena's double German suplex and Styles' double DDT. Well, it's more like a DDT and like a reverse DDT. It's kind of strange. But the big spot of the match was when Ambrose reverses, reversed Styles' calf crusher attempt into a calf crusher on Styles, and then Cena jumped in and locked on the STF at the same time, which had Styles tap out. Now, I thought that Styles would retain based on champion's advantage, since a dual submission would have negated the win and thus wouldn't award anybody the win title, because there could only be like one winner, technically. But the uh, veteran referee, Mike Chioda, decided to throw out the submission and continue the match. Styles eventually brought a chair into the match, a little late, <laughs> and bopped Cena a couple times to get the pin and retain his title. Now, I predict that Cena will get his uh, 16th world title win at Mania next year. That's kind of been the angle that they've been going with as far as with John Cena. Like, why is John Cena in this title match? Like, he got beat by Cena twice, clean as a sheet. And yet he's still in the title picture for some reason. But the whole thing is, you know, he's trying to get his 16th world title so he can at least tie with Ric Flair. So that's kind of the angle they're going with. And I don't expect him to even really come close to it, at least, until WrestleMania. Because that's definitely a Mania moment. You don't want to spoil it on, like, either a Survivor Series or a Royal Rumble or something like that. Uh, even though it would be a big deal at the Rumble, I'd say. But this is definitely a WrestleMania moment, so... I would save it for Mania. And plus, Styles is great as a heel champ, and it would be a big mistake to have him drop the title any sooner than that. And uh, Dean Ambrose really needs a new opponent to work with as well, since it's very obvious that he's not getting the belt again for quite some time. And, you know, I know a lot of people don't like Dean Ambrose. Um, I actually like the guy. I think that since he first won the WWE Championship, he's uh, just kind of reinvented himself as a character. For the longest time, you know, WWE has been trying to portray him as like a, basically like a Cactus Jack light. Basically like the closest the PG era WWE is going to get to a hardcore wrestler, quote unquote. But like you can't bop people over the head with stuff. You can't, you know, blood is highly, highly discouraged. So it's like you can't really get anywhere with something like that. So they tried making him all goofy and Dennis the menace -y. And that was kind of hit or miss. But I think he's really found his stride now. He just needs to find somebody he can work with. Because, like I said, it's very obvious he's not getting the title anytime soon. You know. So, I think he should find a new opponent post-haste. Anyway, uh, the big news with this match is uh, that they switched this match from the last match, the traditional main event, to the first which is a very unconventional move by WWE. But the reasoning behind it is because it was running up against, at least live anyway, it was running up against the presidential debate, so they wanted to come out of the gate strong. However, seeing as this is exclusively on the WWE Network, like I said earlier, it's not um, on any pay-per-view, on-demand kind of thing, aside from the WWE Network, which, like I said, is an on-demand service that people can watch whenever they want, you know, 
whatever they want, stuff like that. So I'm not really sure how many people are watching this live. So for me, I've always had trouble watching, you know, things on the network live, but I've had no problems watching the playback. So I get that they did this main event switch to compete with the presidential debate, and that can give them the benefit of the doubt, or I can give them the benefit of the doubt, rather, since it only happens once every four years. But watching the playback of this, like, years from now, maybe like two or three years from now, it's going to make people scratch their heads and wonder, like, why did WWE do this? This is so weird. Anyway, let's move on. So next we up we had Nikki Bella versus Carmella. And as much as I like heel Carmella, her matches as of late have been very reminiscent of the old TNA fight and scream matches. You know, where they just kind of bop, 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 and they just scream at each other. And Carmella really needs to dial it down a skosh to uh, make the yelly bits count rather than just, like, do them between every single move like she's been doing lately, and especially in this match. Good God. It's really kind of diluting the meaning behind all the taunts and the yelling and stuff. Just kind of saving for like the big moves or like kind of look like she's stretching the other girl. Stuff like that to really kind of dig it in. Uh, but also I was really hoping for some kind of like special stip stipulation so these ladies could really lean into it. But, you know, we just got like a basic match with Nikki getting a clean-as-a-sheet win. I'm glad she got the win so she can throw that in Carmella's face after all these run-ins that she's been doing lately on SmackDown and on, and on uh, Talking Smack the post-Smackdown Live show. But really, they just gotta mix up things uh, the next time around. Either in like a tag match, or maybe have like a no-DQ, false count anywhere, sort of. These, these ladies gotta brawl, man. You gotta let them go. <laughs> Come on, Daniel Bryan. You gotta let your peacocks fly. Or peahens, rather. So next up, after that, we had the Tag Team Championship match between Heath Slater and Rhino. Versus the Usos. And to me, it's just so amazing how over Slater is. And by extension, Rhino. Slater has really made gallons of lemonade out of, initially, out of an initially lemon gimmick. As the sole undrafted wrestler post-draft. I honestly didn't think he'd get anywhere with it beyond just giving him something to do while the writers thought of something. But hey, here we are. <laughs> while American Alpha were the fan favorites of being the inaugural SmackDown Tag Champs. I like how WWE has laid the groundwork for a big Usos American Alpha feud in the future, and I was totally okay with Slater and Rhino winning them instead. If anything, to wrap up the undrafted gimmick, which really had a very short shelf life. So I'm glad that they timed that just right. All that being said, despite Slater and Rhino retaining at No Mercy, I expect the Usos to nab the titles very soon, either at the Rumble or maybe like Survivor Series, something like that. I like Slater and Rhino as a team, but we gotta get the main story of Usos American Alpha underway soon to build up for American Alpha's inevitable WrestleMania win. As for the match, Slater pulled out an impressive avalanche power slam that I thought for sure was gonna be the finish, but sadly wasn't. Slater is super over now, and the crowd's chanting, you know, Heat's got kids frequently during the match, so I do have hope that he'll have something to do after dropping the titles. Next up after that, we had Baron Corbin versus Jack Swagger. And for me, this was like the pee break match. You know, while these guys had a decent wrestling match, and <laughs> I like the spot where Baron Corbin like went for a rope break, but he like reached and grabbed the whole fucking apron. And so like, I've heard of a rope break, but not an apron break. Like, what the fuck? That was, that was kind of impressive, I guess, but it was, it was just so odd. So, but in any event, while they, they had an okay match, I didn't really feel invested in it at all, and really couldn't care less who won. 
The only reaction from the crowd that I heard during this match was Swagger's We the People pose. But other than that, the crowd didn't really care. Uh, Corbin won with the end of days, and that was pretty much that. And then we had what really should have been the main event, the title versus career Intercontinental Championship slash retirement match between Dolph Ziggler and The Miz. And like I said, this definitely should have gone on last as the true main event. Everybody was super invested into a match that, to be fair, has been seen like a million times already. I saw one of the uh, <clears throat> Botchamania endings on, end I think it's Ending Mania 4, I want to say, where they have the uh, Lamb Chops playing along, This Is The Song That Never Ends, with all the uh, little title cards between uh, The Miz and Dolph Ziggler for all their various matches over the years. And I'm like, wow, these guys have really gone at it for like a long-ass time. Like, I know they've been kind of going going at it for a while, because that's kind of been like the main, their main storyline, like, I didn't realize just how far back these guys went and how long they've been in WWE. It's just kind of like, wow. <laughs> I really hope that, uh, <clears throat> like, I, I want uh, them to continue doing stuff for, like, the rematch and stuff. But really, these guys kind of need new opponents, I think. You know, maybe kind of build up the, uh, the rematch, obviously, because they've been doing some really good work. But I think, you know, they really need new people to kind of freshen things up. So, that's just my opinion. So anyway, <clears throat> like I said, Ziggler and Miz have gone at it about as much times as Cena and Orton at this point. But with the title career stip, every near fall, every interference had a massive weight of importance to it. And Ziggler had done a lot. And you gotta give him credit, if anything. He's really gone above and beyond to throw even the smarkiest of smarks off. From speaking publicly about his other endeavors, such as being a stand-up comedian. I haven't seen any of his stand-up routines, so I don't know if it's any good. What do you guys think? Uh, to even having the TV Guide summary of his post, uh, his post No Mercy Smackdown live show, having the description something to the effect of Dolph Ziggler talks about the end of his career. So with that out there as well, Ziggler's losing streak as of late for, for the past couple years, really. <laughs> Uh, many people are hoping he'd win, but we're realistically thinking, you know, he's going to lose in order to either transition to a backstage role as like an agent or a trainer, or maybe work on more of his stand-up career like he's been telling everybody, uh, which is just another rumor that was spread online. I remember seeing that on, I think it was like either SE Scoops or P-Dub Insider or something like that, of, you know, the backstage guys wanting Ziggler to transition to... <clears throat> like an agent or a trainer or something like that. Because, you know, you don't really think about it, but Dolph Ziggler's been in the company for well over a decade. Same with The Miz. So I don't think he's, you know, starting to lose his edge, but he's kind of getting to that point where, you know, it's possible they'd want him to wrap it up. But eh, he's still doing pretty good things, so it's like, I don't think they're going to get rid of a good thing. So it was always that, it was that little element of doubt that they put into this match. So anyway, speaking of which, let's get into the match. <laughs> in the match, Ziggler was bumping and selling like a madman, and Miz was digging deep into his bag of tricks to try a weasel out of it and retain his title. But despite Maurice and later the Spirit Squad, all two of them now, interfering, Ziggler finally, at long last, <laughs> pulled off the win via a bootless super kick. Yeah, that was kind of weird. And he got the one, two, three. The whole, like, pulling the boot off thing... <sighs> That was kind of weird. It kind of reminded me of uh, the Kurt Angle-Eddie Guerrero match where Eddie loosened his boot when uh, Kurt Angle went in for the ankle lock. 
So that way he could escape out of it and then, you know, beat him for the win. So, uh, but I got to say, Miz's selling after he lost this was just so picture perfect. He was heartbroken and openly weeping at his loss to Ziggler. It was just so well done. So I guess those acting lessons paid off, right? <laughs> and like I said before at the beginning of this, why this match didn't go on last is really the big question here. But in any event, it was a heart-stopping, show-stealing ride that was without a doubt match of the night. <clears throat> so sadly, uh, the ladies had to follow that match up uh, with Alexa Bliss versus Naomi, which was kind of, which was a uh, last-minute sort of put-together thing because Becky Lynch was uh, out of action due to some kind of uh, undisclosed injury, illness. Not exactly sure what it was, but she's going to be out for about a month. It's, I don't know if it's like a Sasha Banks deal where, you know, she's been hurt for a while, so she needs like a month to kind of recover. I'm not sure exactly what's going on, but uh, with SmackDown Women's Champion Becky Lynch out of action, due to that undisclosed injury illness, the title match between her and Alexa Bliss had to be rescheduled for the November 8th episode of SmackDown Live in Glasgow, Scotland. So... Uh, for me, I'm really glad they didn't strip Becky of the title this early in her run. You know, considering that she'll only be gone for like a month. I know they did that with Sasha. But I'm really glad they let her keep the title. Because, you know, Becky's a great champ. And to uh, have her lose it this early would just be a big mistake. So I'd probably save that for maybe the Royal Rumble. So that way, you know, she can get it back at Mania or something like that. But that's just my thing. That's just my thoughts. Uh, but anyway, with uh, Becky out of the picture at No Mercy, despite being on the show opener and being advertised for a title match, which uh, was very, very reminiscent for the last pay-per-view that SmackDown did, where, like, Randy Orton, I guess, was still kind of concussed after his match with Brock Lesnar at SummerSlam, but they still advertised Randy Orton as being on the, uh, on the show, but that... You know, they kind of explained it later with, like, him getting beat up backstage. And, oh, he can't continue. He can't go on. Which was just kind of, eh. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, if you know ahead of time that, you know, one of your, one of your guys or gals are going to be, you know, sitting out this pay-per-view, definitely got to, you know, put out a last minute, like, hey, you know, Becky Lynch isn't going to be on because she had some kind of injury or something going on so they just gotta let the fans know as you know ahead of time as possible obviously they can't plan for everything but you know let the fans know <laughs> so uh despite all that alexa had to face naomi instead in a bit of last minute booking just to give them something to do uh the match was okay nothing particularly noteworthy uh, each woman got their usual shtick in with Naomi with the uh, bicycle aerobic kicks and Alexa with that brutal looking like grabbing of the hair kind of surfboard face stomp thing. That's pretty fucking brutal. But uh, to me, sadly, <laughs> Naomi got the pin via roll up. And I say sadly because this really just diminishes Alexa's status as the number one contender for the title when Becky eventually does get healthy again. So this really should have been a win, win for Alexa to make her look strong leading up to the November 8th match. But my guess is that WWE wants to make this a triple threat to mix things up, which Daniel Bryan did mention on the post-No uh, post Mercy Talking Smack segment. And uh, I really don't think it's necessary. 
But if you got, if you have Alexa get the title at either Survivor Series or the Rumble, then aside from the rematch with Becky, she could also feud with Naomi. So maybe this is a setup for that future program. So after that, we got Bray Wyatt versus Randy Orton. So after seeing the incredible Ziggler Miz match earlier, I'm honestly left scratching my head wondering why this match, Bray Wyatt versus Randy Orton, of all the matches on the card, would get the coveted last spot of the night. This really sh should have been nowhere near the main event. So, but don't get me wrong, it was a decent match with the surprising return of Luke Harper and the Beard of Distraction which allowed Wyatt to cinch in the, the sister Abigail for his first win in a long time. But uh, the build-up to this match was basically a contest of who could out-boogeyman the other, those weird backstage vignettes. Uh, it was confusing at best and eye-rolling at worst. So, Unless Orton teams up with somebody else to go against the reformed Wyatt family in a tag match, I would just really hope this feud ends here. This is a lukewarm match, no pun intended, <laughs> with a kind of surprising return of uh, Luke Harper, that was far overhyped by WWE, and with Harper back in the fold, I hope that they turn their gaze elsewhere, possibly to the tag team division, because American Alpha really needs somebody they can feud with until it's time for them to go up against the Usos. So, my overall thoughts of WWE No Mercy 2016. This show really suffered from the presidential debate, which resulted in some cockamamie match orders, not to mention the last minute polling of the women's title match, where the number one contender lost, and a thrown-together-at-the-last-minute replacement match. But the biggest crime of this show was definitely not having Ziggler Miz go on last. That show had the most uh, kind of emotional investment. It had the most kind of build-up. Really, it should have gone on last. And, you know, they should have switched out with uh, Orton Wyatt. That's just my thoughts. So, before we get into Raw, we're going to start things off with uh, Raw News. And this is kind of... What I'm going with with this uh, Weekend Wrestling Podcast format is if there's WWE news and it involves like a specific wrestler, I'm going to put them into the little news thing that I have before the episode review. So we'll do like the news and then the review and so on and so forth. So let's get into the Raw news. So the big news for involving a Raw wrestler is that Paige has been struck with a second wellness violation, and she'll be out for at least six to seven months. Um, according to Paige, the reason she popped on the whiz quiz is due to painkillers prescribed for her neck injury. However, WWE says that Paige tested positive for an illegal non-prescription drug, and a major point of contention between WWE and Paige is the company's refusal to pay for her neck surgery, according to the Wrestling Observer, which is where I got all this information from. So WWE's medical staff does not feel the surgery is necessary, which is what led to Paige hiring legal representation a few months back. And the general feeling is that Paige is on her way out of the company. Many factors have led to the current situation, including the drama surrounding WWE allegedly wanting her to break up with Alberto Del Rio, now known outside of WWE as Alberto El Patron. And uh, in addition to that, her two wellness policy violations publicly lashing out against the company and the dispute over her neck surgery. Now, this is not good, to say the least, obviously. <laughs> you know, Paige is a good worker. Uh, I've been really looking forward to her coming back into the fold, and I was really hoping that after this first wellness violation that she was going to kind of come back a bit more humbled, but still ready to come to work like Roman Reigns did, although she wasn't 
quite in that top guy, top girl spot like Roman was. But still, I was hoping that she'd kind of come back and just, you know, continue to kick ass. This is my house, damn it. <laughs> but uh, it looks like she's pretty much on her way out of WWE at this point. She really, if, if she does manage to come back somehow, she's really got to get her shit together. Because, you know, it's one thing to violate the wellness policy once, but to do it again and like twice in a row, basically. Uh, I don't know. And plus, she's, you know, bashing the company, which is usually the kiss of death when you involve WWE. It's just, nah. <laughs> it's not looking good. So, hopefully she can get her act together and, you know, maybe this time away from, you know, the company will help her sort things out. And hopefully, you know, my hopes is that she eventually does come back. You know, maybe not immediately after her suspension, but, you know, after some time out in the Indies helping out, you know, her boyfriend, Alberto Del Rio, with the various things that he's doing. So, you know, anyway, I hope to see her again soon. So <laughs> we'll close that out here. So let's get into the Raw review. The newly crowned Raw Women's Champion Sasha Banks starts off the show with a heartfelt girl power promo. That leads her to making her rematch against Charlotte at the upcoming Raw pay-per-view, Hell in a Cell, actually inside the cell, which is the first time women have battled inside the structure. So I think this is really interesting, but it could go wrong if they don't uh, prepare themselves. So this naturally brings out Charlotte and Lana and Rusev? It seems really random, right? Also, Rusev's new neckbeard with Windbreaker looks weird too. He then dismisses the women's revolution and says that he's the main event wherever he goes. Charlotte snatched the mic up from him mid-promo and does her best Stephanie McMahon character assassination impersonation. I and everybody else popped big for that. After both Sasha and Charlotte decked Lana, they double dropkick Rusev out of the ring. And after Rusev gets back up, Roman Reigns comes out and Rusev bails. Then Sasha and Reigns pose with their titles. This was very reminiscent of the highlight reel segment with Jericho getting super kicked by both Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens. Then the whole, drink it in, man. Gift to Jericho bit. And uh, Sammy and Kevin were feuding at the time as well. So it's kind of weird to think about it now, with, what with Owens and Jericho being the best bromance on the show currently. Then we have the New Day come out with Big E throwing bootios from, it, from out of his singlet. Ugh. And Xavier and Kofi making local Bay Area references as well as a full house reference. Wow. <laughs> 1995 called. They want their hip hotshot writer back. After that, we have Cesaro versus Kofi Kingston. And honestly, the best part of this match was Sheamus on his phone just sitting on the ring steps as Cesaro is having trouble with Kofi and the rest of New Day on the outside. So he's just kind of sitting there on his phone. I guess he's doing like a Facebook Live thing. I don't know. He just looked like he was, you know, just dicking around randomly. But uh, Kofi rolls Cesaro into a small package for the win. Cesaro and Sheamus argue after the match, and Sheamus walks off, leaving Cesaro in the ring. And I really like the odd couple feel this unlikely tag team. It's different, but I feel that it hasn't really hit its stride yet. Regardless, it at least gives these guys something to do on air, and it gives the New Day someone they can work with until Gallows and Anderson win the tag titles after New Day breaks Demolition's record, or their streak or something like that, which I think is in another couple months. So I suspect that Gallows and Anderson will probably win them at the Rumble. That's just kind of my early prediction. So long as they can, you know, book those guys as a dominant badass tag team rather than that stupid comedy gimmick that they had for a little bit after the brand split. <sighs> really hope they don't kill him again like that. 
After that, we had Bailey versus Cami Fields, which was a pretty meh squash match. Bailey gets the win after a Bailey to Belly. Now, is it a Bailey to Belly or is it a Belly to Bailey? I don't know. <laughs> As Bailey's walking out victoriously, uh, Dana Brooke jumps her, and one of the wacky, waving, arm flailing, inflatable tube men lies across Bailey as she lays unconscious. Pretty symbolic and a nice touch. Next up, we have a cruiserweight tag match between Drew Gulak and Tony Nese versus Lince Dorado and Sin Cara. Now, I absolutely love the cruiserweights. They were the best part of watching w WCW back in the day, and they were often on uh, Thunder. So as bad as Thunder could get, at least the cruiserweights were there to kind of offset that, and I just fucking loved cruiserweight matches back then. But I do strongly agree with a lot of people online in that they should really open these shows like Nitro did back in the day in order to hype up the crowd. I understand they want to liven up the third hour dead zone, but this is really harming the cruiserweights more than it's helping lift the third hour. I fucking hate how everybody is either spouting rando chants like Randy Savage during these matches or just otherwise not giving a shit. These guys go out there and have pretty kick-ass matches, although it is admittedly a scotch toed down from the CWC. I'm such a big fan of Tony Nese as well, and the guy continues to impress. I'm positive that he'll be Cruiserweight Champion one day, and if any one of the Cruiserweights could easily pivot into the Universal title picture, my money's on Nice. Because hey, <laughs> it's not that hard to gain a few extra pounds of muscle, especially for him. Anyway, Cinderado got the win over the Premier Shooters, that's what I'm calling them now, <laughs> after Dorado landed a shooting star press into a pin on Gulak. After some cheap pops and obvious misdirection, Mick Foley agreed on the Raw women's title match at Hell in a Cell will be inside the cell. They also said that Seth Rollins' universal title rematch will be inside the cell as well, obviously. <laughs> Kevin Owens, along with Chris Jericho, come out. Owens gets in some nice verbal jabs at Foley, saying that he doesn't want to defend his title in the cell so that he can have a long career and not end up a washed-up GM like Foley. Jericho ends up putting Foley on the list. Steph then makes the main event tonight, Jericho versus Rollins, with the stip that if Jericho wins, he'll be added to the Universal title match at Hell in a Cell. Now, I hate these types of matches. They, they've been kind of doing this at least ever since the brand split happened. They've been kind of really pushing this whole triple threat thing and then like the adding people to like, oh, if you win this match, you'll get put into a triple threat instead of just like a one-on-one -on -one match. And they usually pit the guy vying to make, the, make a title match a triple threat against somebody already in the match. So it ends up either making the guy in the match to begin with look weak, or it pretty much buries the other guy looking to get added to it. So it's to me, it's a, it's a no-win situation. So we really gotta stop doing that. Or if they wanna continue doing it, have two guys two who aren't in the match at all, and whoever wins gets put into the triple threat, I think that'd be okay. And if you don't wanna make it a triple threat, you could have like one of the guys that's in the match like interfere and get everybody disqualified so that way nobody gets added. It's kind of a fuck finish, but it kind of puts the other guy over as a heel, so anyway. <laughs> That's just my thoughts on that. So after that, we get the backstage segment with Brian Kendrick and TJ Perkins in the dressing room. Holy outdated references, Batman. Going from Greasy Jack Sparrow to the N64, the hotshot writer from 1995 strikes again. Then Kendrick tries to pull a fast one on TJP but gets knocked down into the fetal position. Perkins kneeling over him before heading out. Jesus, this segment made Kendrick look weak as fuck. That don't hurt me bro face really made me feel sorry for the guy. I liked how during the CWC they portrayed Kendrick as the crafty veteran, 
who has a bunch of unorthodox tricks up his sleeve to put these young pups in their place. Like, he had a lot of good ring psychology in the CWC. You know, like, uh, <laughs> I like the spot he had with Kota Ibushi. That's another one of my favorite matches, you know. Just Ibushi, you know, impressed me throughout the whole friggin' thing. And I like the part at the beginning of the match where uh, Kendrick has him on the outside and is constantly baiting him to come outside. And he finally does, and he, like, tries to trap his ankle in the guardrail. And then, then just like win via countout. So I thought, wow, that's really clever. <laughs> and then using, uh, what was it, the little, uh, little in-between thing that kind of holds the ring post and the turnbuckle together, the actual like uh, wire, I don't know what that's called. He actually used that in like a move on Ibushi to kind of work on the neck. I thought that was really cool and just like sick as fuck when he pulled that off. I was just like, ah, Jesus. <laughs> Because the guy has like a reconstructed neck, so he's obviously working the neck. So I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, But anyway, since making the move to Raw, he and the rest of the division really aren't looking that strong. It's not rocket science getting these guys over. All you gotta do is basically just do what you did in the CWC. Just tell a great in-ring story by having kick-ass, balls-to-the-wall matches. You don't have to have a big storyline with most of these guys. You can continue to have the story between TJP and Brian Kendrick, but eh. Keep the other guys just doing balls-to-the-wall crazy matches, and then later incorporate the stories. And also have them open up the show. Jesus Christ. Gotta have them open up the show to a hot crowd so they can get them pumped up for the rest of the show. Instead, they're sticking them in the death spot during the third hour and wondering, well, gee golly gosh, why aren't these cruiserweights getting over with the crowd? Fucking idiots. Jericho should put whoever's booking these guys on the third hour on the list. Anyway... Next up, we have Charlotte and Rusev versus Roman Reigns and Sasha Banks. Uh, this was okay. Nothing really to write home about. Everybody gets their usual shit in, and Sasha picks up the win via the bank statement on Charlotte. It just seemed very thrown together with no rhyme or reason other than to mix two non-related feuds into one match. With that third hour, Raw can't really can't afford to be condensing matches like that. At least get some other people who they've had a history with to mix things up match-wise. You know, and also... When are they going to get Nia Jackson on this action? I'm sure she's getting tired of doing nothing but winning squash matches after she came up to the roster. How long has it been? Like three months now? Same with Braun Strowman. Although, in Strowman's case, I think they're beginning to work him into a program against who? I don't know yet. But he's been cutting promos lately, saying how he's getting sick and tired of facing weak opponents and wants a real challenge. So I'm hoping that's leading up to something soon. After that, Paul Heyman comes out to talk about Goldberg! Goldberg! And his return to the ring, which has everybody online buzzing. Heyman puts over Goldberg pretty well, saying that he's got a one-up on Brock Lesnar. I'm sorry. Brock Lesnar! That was terrible, I know. <laughs> and then he challenges him to not just a match, but a fight. Because in Suplex City, he's not Goldberg, he's next. Great promo work here. Pauly is just such a master at his craft. And I'm really excited for next week's Raw when Goldberg comes out to address Heyman's challenge. While I was hoping for this match at the Rumble, since they're starting to promote it, and it's in the big Alamo Dome and all that stuff, doing, as, doing it at Survivor Series might just be the shot in the arm it needs in order to be still considered a Big Four pay-per-view. Because it's just, I don't know, Survivor Series has kind of lost its luster over the years. So maybe a big match like this could kind of help it out. Anyway... 
Next up, we have uh, Arya Davari versus TJP. This is a pretty decent cruiserweight match. Davari's a good worker, and I'm a big fan of TJP. Ever since he faced off against the Mac, or I'm sorry, Dumac, <laughs> in the cruiserweight classic, I'm like, wow, this guy's really good. I honestly didn't expect him to win the CWC, but I thought that he'd be in the semifinals at least. But in any event, he had a good match here, got the win via the knee bar, which is also called the TJP Clutch, I've heard online. I just wish the announcers would call it that instead of just the knee bar. At least give him some kind of identity with the move. You know, I realize he's still fairly new, but come on. TJP Clutch. Or, he's got him in the clutch! Oh my god! Stuff like that. Anyway, during this match, Kendrick is also out there for commentary, which he's really not that good at. He just kept stepping on the toes of the other announcers the whole time, but to be fair, it's hard to find a spot to punch in your commentary when you have three other guys there. I think that Byron Saxon should have just taken a powder during that match to allow Michael Cole to do the play-by-play while uh, Corey Graves fed questions to Kendrick. And that I think that could have worked. You know, maybe have Byron Saxon punch in every once in a while, but just leave the heavy lifting to Michael Cole and Corey Graves. And then Kendrick just kind of chimes in here and there. But after the match, Kendrick claps for TJP and they have a stare down. Hopefully their match at Hell in a Cell is Kendrick be, you know, resuming his crafty veteran character as opposed to just being another chicken shit heel like he's been doing since he came up to Raw. Yeah. Hopefully he comes back to that crafty veteran character. So, next up we have the main event, Chris Jericho versus Seth Rollins, with the stipulation that if Jericho wins, he gets added to the Universal Championship match at Hell in a Cell. A lot of good selling on the ribs here by Rollins. Owens comes out to watch the match. Rollins gets a couple good hits on Owens here and there during the match, because Owens is just kind of yelling at him on the outside, so he gets like a drop kick, does like a tope con hilo on him, I think. Uh, Jericho counters the pedigree into a Walls Jericho attempt, but then Seth reverses it into a small package for the win. So, Chris Jericho is out of the Universal title match at Hell in a Cell. Owens comes in after the match, pounds Rollins a bit, goes for a pop-up powerbomb. Rollins then tries to counter it into a pedigree, but Jericho jumps in. Rollins manages to hit Jericho with a pedigree as Owens abandons his BFF Jericho, walking up the ramp to end the show. This was pretty good. Like I've said earlier, WWE really needs to stop doing this. If I win, I get to be inserted into the title match type of matches. It'll either make the guy trying to get in look weak as fuck if he loses, or it'll make the guy already scheduled to be in the match look weak, especially since they love to have clean wins on these matches. Now, obviously, you know, Jericho's been around for a while. He's kind of the uh, very giving veteran, so he likes to work with a lot of the young guys. So it's not really going to hurt him overall, but for up-and-coming guys, it's really going to hurt their chances in the future, I think. So, uh, now if they did some kind of fuck finish where, like, the heel grabs the tights for the win or maybe the babyface gets beat up on the outside with, like, a chair or something without the ref seeing it and is then pinned, then it at least makes the guy getting beat look strong because, hey, if the guy who won had had to cheat in order to win, then maybe he could have won had that not happened. So it kind of puts in that little element of doubt. Like, he couldn't win clean, so he had to resort to cheating. So it still kind of keeps the guy strong a little bit. Now we have the SmackDown Live review. Dolph Ziggler opened the show with a victory promo as the new Intercontinental Champ. Miz and Maurice came out, both dressed in black, to mourn the death of the IC title. Miz then cuts a pretty passionate promo, saying that he's the hero and he wants his gold back. He's got the girl, now he wants the gold. 
Ziggler then mocks Miz for crying after his loss at No Mercy, which got a bunch of, you were crying, chants going. After some more verbal jousting, Kenny and Mikey of the Spirit Squad, or what's left of the Spirit Squad, came out to have a two-on-one handicap match with Ziggler to open the show. Ziggler made, made quick work of them, and Miz jumped him soon after, but the tag champs, uh, Heath Slater and Rhino, ran out to make the save. This was designed mostly to get Ziggler over as the new IC champ, but I think Miz got over pretty well too. He's changed from just a standard chicken shit heel to an almost lawful antagonist, a sort of like a dark knight, who believes that he's really in the right and that the hero Ziggler is the real heel. SmackDown Commissioner Shane McMahon and General Manager Daniel Bryan were backstage when they announced their challenge to Raw at Survivor Series for not just the traditional 5-on-5 Survivor Series match, but one for the women and tag team divisions as well. This is a pretty bold challenge, and hopefully they can get enough people in on this match, as well as keep the audience invested. One Survivor Series match is one thing, but three could be overkill if not done right. I like how the WWE is trying different things, but I hope they have a plan with this. Survivor Series has really lost its luster over the past couple years, and I hope they can bring it back as a bona fide Big Four pay-per-view this year. Anyway, after that, we have Naomi versus Carmella, and it was just an okay women's match. Nikki came out to distract Carmella and allow Naomi to sneak up a, or sneak in a roll-up rather for the win. Nikki then stormed the ring to get her hands on Carmella, who bailed into the crowd. Still hoping they allow these two to really dig into each other in the future with like a no DQ match or something of the like. Hashtag Bella versus Mella. After that, we had Jimmy Uso versus Chad Gable. Jimmy got the win when Jay helped leverage his roll-up on Gable. Uh, that was pretty uh, interesting. I'm honestly surprised the ref didn't see it. I, I could kind of see that, like, oh, he was, you know, <laughs> I guess Jimmy's body was, like, blocking Jay, and he was kind of, like, sneaking in there, but it was still kind of like, why wouldn't you see that? It was kind of confusing, but it was just another match to help get these guys used to each other when American Alpha and the Usos do inevitably feud. And props to WWE for not blowing their load when American Alpha got drafted to SmackDown and having these guys feud, like, immediately. Um, the World Heavyweight Champ AJ Styles came out to do his usual promo shtick, bragging about beating up John Cena. And then beating both Cena and Dean Ambrose at the same time at No Mercy. Then he goes on about being a fighting champ who's also willing to give someone an opportunity. And then Dean Ambrose comes out, berates Styles, and Styles again cues for his opponent to come out, which was revealed to be, with no music, no fanfare, jobber extraordinaire, the second coming of Gilbert, James Ellsworth. Ambrose then says he wanted a ringside seat, to which Styles told him no, just get out of here, because he didn't want him distracting Ellsworth. SmackDown GM Daniel Bryan came out to announce that Ambrose would instead be the special guest referee. So, after that, we have AJ Styles versus James Ellsworth in a non-title match, of course, because that would be silly who would book a title match with James Ellsworth. Anyway, <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed this match from start to finish. Not because it was particularly good, you know, Styles could wrestle a sandbag and make it match of the year, but because of Ambrose's shenanigans during the match. And I know a lot of people, I've seen it online, I know a lot of people got really salty about it and echoed Jim Cornette's funny don't draw money mantra. I think that if done sparingly, funny can be okay, like in this case. But scheduling a World Heavyweight Championship match for the next episode, Daniel Bryan, is too much. Which is what happened on the following Talking Smack episode. Anyway, some good spots were here. Uh, so, but fuck, start. 
Some good spots here were Styles' numerous attempts to win the match, but Ambrose not giving him the win either because his cell phone went off, he was doing autographs, eating popcorn, stuff like that. That was pretty funny. <laughs> Styles then hit a Styles Clash that almost snapped poor Ellsworth's neck because he tucked his head, which would have redirected all the impact to his head. But thankfully, Styles readjusted and mid-move to save him. Styles really does put the pro in pro wrestler, methinks. Ambrose then got a dirty deeds in on Styles and stood there for what seemed like forever deliberating on what he should do with both men down. He was just sitting there, like, staring like, Eh? 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 I was just like, come on, dude. We all know what you're gonna do. Just fucking do it. And I don't know why he waited there that long, but it it really did drag the match a skosh. Finally, Ambrose put Ellsworth on top of Styles for a, uh, a fast two-count. Ambrose does the spot again, sands the long-ass pause, and Ellsworth actually picks up the upset win over the World Heavyweight Champion. Like I said, as just a standalone exhibition match, I thought it was fun. Um, I know Ambrose's antics rub some people the wrong way, but for me, it works. And like I said, you know, <laughs> keep, keep in mind, as a standalone match, it's okay. I don't want to run a program with these guys, but, you know, it's just like a one-off. I think it's fun. Anyway, we have the main event, Randy Orton and Kane versus Luke Harper and Bray Wyatt. Yet again, we have Bray Wyatt and Randy Orton undeservedly in the main event. Truly, a, a very truly forgettable match. Towards the end, Art Orton went to tag Kane, but then the trademark Wyatt jump scare came on. When the lights came up, Harper was in his place, reaching for a tag mockingly. Wyatt snuck in his sister Abigail for the win, and that's about it, really. Wyatt and Harper later showed up on Talking Smack, kind of inter interrupting the segment, cut their usual spooky, scary skeletons promo, and the show ended. Also, one thing I wanted to mention before we move on to the NXT review is that Demon Kane, according to his SmackDown Live stats, lives in Knoxville, Tennessee. You know, the devil's favorite city, apparently. <laughs> so... Now we're going to do NXT news, and there's a lot of news with NXT lately. So, um, we're going to start off with Mr. ROH, Roderick Strong, making his arrival to NXT. According to the WWE Instagram page, he was shown with Uncle Hunter, Triple H, giving the okay for this guy. Um, <clears throat> I've heard a lot of good things about him over the years, a lot of, you know, good work, I guess. I haven't really watched him in the ring. But I've heard a lot of good things, and so I can't wait to see him on NXT. And uh, the next thing we have is Hideo Itami, again, suffers from injury. But it's a neck injury at an NXT live event, and he'll be out until at least December. So he announced on this past Thursday that he's injured, and he'll be unable to compete in the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic. He was scheduled to team with Kota Ibushi, who <laughs> I guess signed another temp deal with WWE, uh, so he, that way he can compete in the tournament. But he'll be out of action for several months due to his neck injury. Tommy says he likely won't be healthy in time for a takeover in Toronto during the Survivor Series weekend, but he vows to return in time for NXT's first ever live event from Osaka, Japan on December 3rd. And uh, he suffered a neck injury earlier this month at a live event in Largo, Florida, apparently. Uh, he was teaming with Shinsuke Nakamura, the NXT champ, in a match against Riddick Moss and Tino Sabatelli. Moss dropped Itami on his head while performing a modified power slam, and the match ended abruptly. And so, with Itami once again on the shelf, 
TJP, the cruiserweight champ, has replaced him in the Dusty Classic with Kota Ibushi. So that'll be an interesting team up. I think they'll do good things. But it's just really sad to see Hideo Tommy again on the shelf due to injury. Hopefully he can <clears throat> heal up soon, at least for the Osaka event with NXT. And hopefully he can stay healthy because this guy is a friggin' beast in the ring. And I'm hoping that they can do some kind of program with him in the future. Uh, but for now, you know, just get well soon. <laughs> so the big news with NXT, before we get into uh, this week's episode recap, is that Mickey James, yes, the Mickey James, has signed a deal with WWE to face Asuka for the NXT Women's title at TakeOver in Toronto. Wow. Now, I've heard that WWE has been reaching out to stars from maybe like a decade or so ago to kind of get them in to help work with some of the younger, less polished guys. I know they reached out to Sheldon Benjamin, who is still out with a shoulder injury. Uh, or not a shoulder injury, but like a torn rotator cuff. So he's going to be out for the next couple months. I think he'll be back sometime either at the beginning of next year or like around Mania time. So hopefully we'll get to see him again soon. Um, his was the biggest name of the... Uh, you know, older talent that WWE had been reaching out to to kind of help build up for the draft. And apparently Mickey James was also contacted too. I didn't even know about this until until I saw the graphic for it. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so this is completely out of left field. I was kind of hoping that they would save this for like some random encounter for Mickey to just like show up in an NXT episode leading up to TakeOver in Toronto. But... um I'm really looking forward to this. I'm really interested to see um, just how Mickey is doing these days. Um, I saw some pictures on Instagram. She looks to be doing just fine. She's got a uh, family now, and she's still relatively in shape. So I'm looking forward to seeing how she can work against Asuka at TakeOver in Toronto. And uh, we'll see because, you know... <laughs> Like in all these programs or all these promos that Asuka's been cutting for a while, no woman in NXT anyway is ready for Asuka. Which is true. I mean, the closest you got right now is Ember Moon. And uh, she's really not ready just yet. But she's probably the closest that anybody is ready to face Asuka at this point, especially post draft. So, anyway, let's get into the NXT recap. So we start off the. The show with Bobby Roode and Ty Dillinger, the Glorious Ten, versus the debuting stable, Sanity. Now, I really like the one-upsmanship between Roode and Dillinger during their entrances, but then the new stable, Sanity, came out. And these guys have had a ton of vignettes building them up for weeks now, to, to me at least to the point of annoyance. The same thrown together stock footage of graffiti on walls and chain link fences and all this kind of anarchy sort of things, just kind of annoying, and it's like, I don't know, I don't get it. <laughs> and, you know, the one positive about this is that I don't have to see those damn things again. So after Rude and Dillager hit the ring, Sanity come out, all four of them wearing masks, and they had a really big entrance, kind of set up with, like, the fog and really tight spotlights and stuff like that. <clears throat> and the big two who are going up against Rude and Dillinger in this match are Alexander Wolfe and Sawyer Fulton. And these two really lay into Dillinger to start off the match. As, and as he reaches for the tag to tag Bobby Roode in, Roode puts, puts his robe back on and he walks out. 
So Sanity hit this sick suplex into a slam double team for the pin. So it was basically a squash match to kind of introduce Sanity. So after attacking Dillinger some more after the match, the other members of Sanity Unmasked to reveal Nikki Cross, who was uh, who had an NXT match or some kind of weird like six woman tag match, and uh, also the long overdue Eric Young as the leader. So I've been wondering what happened to Eric Young ever since he had that one-and-done match with Samoa Joe earlier this year. And I was really hoping he'd come back. I'm like, where the hell is Eric Young? Is he, like, out with injury? Or did he just, like, have one match with WWE and is like, nope! <laughs> like, what the hell, man? This guy had a pretty good match with uh, Samoa Joe, and he's done some good things in TNA. So it's like, why not recruit this guy? <clears throat> Anyway, backstage, Bobby Roode's saying that he's not even a tag wrestler, which is pretty laughable considering his history as a tag team champ as part of Team Canada and Beer Money in TNA. Then he says that he only entered the Dusty Classic because Dillinger begged him to, and he walks off, which, if you guys saw the previous episode, um, it was Bobby Roode who actually asked Ty Dillinger. So he's kind of doing this, you know, hypocritical or contradictory statements and stuff, just kind of playing up the whole heel character and stuff like that. So um, it's sad to see these guys split up so early, but hopefully it'll lead to a feud and some really kick-ass matches. The debuting Sanity Stable had a cool entrance, and the lighting during their spots was very well done. It was like a very tight spotlight. It was really cool. And having Eric Young as their leader, leader will help legitimize them, and I'm glad that they have a strong female in Nikki Cross to hopefully feud with either Ember Moon or Asuka in the future. So, aside from Ember Moon, maybe Nikki Cross will be the next to be ready for Asuka. So next up we have Billy Kay versus Liv Morgan, and they're trying to work uh, Billy Kay and uh, Peyton Royce as like, you know, the female tag team, or just like a little mini stable, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's just, I don't know, like the promos just aren't doing it for me. They kind of come off as, like, the mean foreign girls, and it's just kind of, eh. Maybe if they give them something that they can sink their teeth into, they can kind of do something with, but just kind of as is, it's pretty, meh. And this match is pretty much the same thing, too. It's a pretty quick three-and-a-half-minute set-your-watch-to-it match, while with uh, Billy picking up the win with a big boot. And uh, these, really, these ladies really need some in-ring polishing. It wasn't really god-awful, but there was a very notable lack of finesse and smoothness to the match. It was very, very sloppy. So after that, we have TM61 versus Riddick Moss and Tino Sabatelli to continue on with the Dusty Rhodes Classic. So TM61 really carried these guys, I gotta say. Thorne and Miller got the win via Thunder Valley in advance to the Dusty Classic. And I'm really hoping that TM61 gets to work with some good tag teams in that, because I know these guys can go. They just need to not be bogged down with green guys all the time. So now we have the main event. Do not adjust your TV set. The main event for NXT tonight is Buddy Murphy versus Wesley Blake. The tag team nobody cared about that split up and everybody still somehow managed to care less. Go at it for a bit with little to no crowd reaction until Samoa Joe comes out to mercifully end this match by laying out both of them. Then Joe gets on the mic and does his Give me Nakamura or give me death slash my NXT title. Weekly ultimatum to NXT General William Regal. Joe's in the ring for a good while while he issues his demands again to have NXT champ Shinsuke Nakamura come out with a neck brace on. 
Nakamura takes it off and storms the ring, brawling with Joe until security arrives to separate them. Nakamura breaks through a couple times, and when they finally do battle back in the ring, Nakamura lays Joe out with a Kinshasa to close the show. So, getting back to Murphy and Blake for a sec, if NXT is trying to get us to take them more seriously, it's not working. If they split up as a tag team, why not just go all out with, a, with brand new outfits, new music? Because the music, especially, especially the music, Jesus Christ, the music especially isn't doing it for me, or the normally rambunctious Full Sail crowd. You could hear a pin drop when their music hits. It's Rob Conway levels of non-pop. Seriously. <laughs> Go back and listen to their entrance. It's just, nobody gives two shits and I'll fucking holler about these guys. They gotta get something going here. But anyway, once Joe got these guys out of the way for the real main event, because, I mean, let's be honest here, then everything fell into, pla into place just fine. Both Joe and Nakamura played their parts as expected, and it's getting me hyped for round two at TakeOver in Toronto next month. It's going to be a sad, sad day for NXT when these two eventually do get the call-up to the main roster. And that's this week in wrestling. Um, once again, apologies for the lateness in this podcast. I'm hoping to do these more on like a Friday-Saturday sort of deal, depending on how much time I have and stuff like that. More aiming so towards like a Friday, so that way we can kind of lead into the weekend with it. But this is just kind of a one-off on Sunday sort of deal. So what do you guys think of it? Um, I really enjoyed doing this podcast, and I really like where wrestling's going right now, so I think it's a lot of fun. If you guys have any suggestions for uh, different segments and stuff in the show, be sure to leave them in the comments down below in the boopity boop, or follow me on Twitter, at TheAndySan, T-H-E-A-N-D-Y-S-A-N. And uh, be sure to leave me some feedback, you know, maybe ask a question or something like that. Who knows? And uh, we'll see you next week with uh, more Raw, SmackDown, and NXT uh, reviews, recaps, and wrestling news from around the world. So with that said, this is the Andy San signing off for now. Thanking you guys for tuning into this first ever weekly wrestling podcast and uh, for watching my other stuff. And also got to give you guys uh, props for liking the thumbs. Or the stars, depending on your platform. Uh, comment, subscribing, sending a few friends to the party. And hey, as always, we'll see you next time. Catch you later, guys. Bye.